Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy. In this episode of The Lead, I talk to the New York Times Vice President and Deputy General Counsel David McCraw. As Deputy General Counsel, David is the primary litigator for The Times and is a tireless defender of the First Amendment. He also gave the 41st McGill Lecture at the Grady College in 2019, and in this episode, we discuss press freedom and the future of journalism internationally. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Welcome to the show, David. I really appreciate you taking out the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me here. At what point in your career did the intersection of law and journalism happen? Was this always a sort of goal for you? When I was in journalism school at the University of Illinois, I was always interested in legal things. I was interested in sort of the intersection of the two. I didn't really pursue it. I, I didn't end up going to law school until I was 34. But by then, I had been teaching journalism. I'd been a journalist. And it seemed, I'm not going to say like a natural transition, but it seemed like an obvious way to bring together two of my interests. As Deputy General Counsel, what does a typical day look like for you? I can only imagine that you're being pulled in many directions each day. I'm not sure there's a typical day, but I can give you the flavor of a day. I usually start at 5 a.m. by finding out whether anything's come in from Hong Kong or any of our European bureaus. A lot of days, there's nothing there. Other days, there's a story or there's a concern that I need to address. Over, over the course of the day, I will be involved with several things dealing with the newsroom. Um, we'll be talking to people about stories that are coming up. Somebody may send me a story to be reviewed for liable. In some cases, there will be questions about access to a court proceeding or a freedom of information request. And all of those things blend, <laughs> many of them at the, at the same time, unfortunately. Um, but it, at the end of, of every day, what we hope we've done is made some contribution to making the journalism better, to getting more information to more of our journalists. If we've done those things, we feel we've been successful. How how do you go about working with a reporter who may be coming to you with a story idea? They haven't even started reporting on it yet, but the methods that they want to use to go about reporting on that story require things like maybe going undercover or using anonymous sourcing, things that sort of get a little sticky. How do you work through a, a reporter to make sure that you're reporting in a way that's ethical and lawful? Here, here's one of the great things about my job and what makes it so easy, don't let my boss know this, uh, is that the ethical calls are much harder than the legal calls. In, in, in journalism in this country, so much is allowed legally. That's why it's so important to have people who are in, in charge of ethics. Um, our standards editor and I will often be called into the same meeting and my presentation will be 30 seconds and his will be minutes long because he has to get into should we do this the the could we do this is usually easier there are times though when when a journalist can get n near to tripping a, a legal line it's certainly true with much of the computer reporting we're doing now um 
people are using in, in newsrooms incredible techniques for scraping sites or finding out information about the platforms. And the law is very unsettled there. It's, it's an it's a evolving part of the law. And we spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, on things like garden variety deception, Again, that's it's much more of an ethical consideration. We spend a lot of time uh, on the ethics side talking about it. On the legal side, not so much, although sometimes it's not that something is necessarily illegal, but the methods, if we were to get sued for libel, look very bad to a jury. And we'll think about that. So David came out with a book in 2019 titled Truth in Our Times, Inside the Fight for Press Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, about Mr. McCraw's life on the job, including what it's been like to fight legal battles against President Trump, for example, Harvey Weinstein as another. So in a time where American journalists are increasingly criticized, how will this constant fight for press freedom affect our industry's ability to do our job? I like to divide the answer to that into two parts. One is the law, and one is what I call the hearts and minds problem. The hearts and minds problem to me is, is really serious, and that is the decline in support for a free press. There was a poll that came out while I was writing my book that said 26% of the people thought the president should have the right to close news organizations that misbehave. There was a poll not long ago from the Harris Organization which said 33% of the American people think the press is the enemy of the people. Popular support of journalism ultimately is the safeguard of press freedom. People have to believe in press freedom if there's going to be press freedom. So that that concerns me, and and I think as as a lawyer, I have to address that. I think journalists need to find a way to address it. I think academics, I think people in all walks of society. But it's very important that we understand that's the foundation of press freedom. The, the other question that, that, that you raised deals with change in the law. Actually, what goes on in courts or what goes on in legislatures. Uh, we have an amazing amount of press freedom. It should really empower journalists to go out and do good work because so much is allowed legally. The one area that I think is, is, is a problem is protection of sources. It remains a hodgepodge across the country. It's vitally important to what journalists do. And we just need greater certainty about what the rules are. More than that, we need greater certainty that if a source needs to be granted anonymity to help tell the truth, a reporter can protect that anonymity. So looking internationally, as the Times is an international company and publication, are international journalists facing the same level of pressure or different forms of, of pressures on reporting? It's been completely ramped up internationally. One of the things that, that is deeply concerning is the number of countries, awful governments in awful places, that have decided that they will embrace the idea of fake news and enemy of the people in order to try to suppress local journalists and also harass or make difficult the, the work of, of international reporters. I, I've long been involved with our international operations. I was the crisis manager for two kidnappings, the detention of our journalists in Libya, and a variety of other international crises. And one of the things that we could always count for, count on in those days, we could always count on, is that 
whatever we'd said about the State Department over time in the New York Times, the State Department and the U.S. embassies would speak up for press freedom and for the safety of our people. That may still happen, but what concerns me is that the local governments used to care that if they were abusing international reporters, if they were abusing local reporters, that they would fall into disfavor with the U.S., that they would jeopardize their relationship with the, with the United States. I think now they think, having heard the rhetoric out of Washington, that by going after reporters, they may actually be currying favor with the administration. That is a very bad development. So you mentioned earlier libel, and on this similar vein of, of dealing with international law, how do you go about handling something that may not be libelous in the U.S., but because the Times is inherently international, may cause problems internationally? As a practical matter, we end up taking each of those cases one at a time. The facts are going to be different. The country is going to be different. The importance of the journalism is going to be different. But in broad strokes, we look at it this way. Um, our core audience is our American audience. We need to give them the news they need. And if the laws of a foreign country stand in the way of that, we are going to try to find a way to deal with that. That may be going into a court in a foreign jurisdiction to try to fight a, um, a press ban, for instance, on court coverage. Uh, it may be that we take a close look at the way the story is, is written and find ways that we think we can still tell this story to Americans but meet the demands of, of the foreign regime. Sometimes in countries that don't have real court systems, that don't have a real belief in press freedom, we'll take our chances. We're going to tell the story and whatever the consequences of that happen to be, we're going to deal with those. Doing all those things and being smart about how we approach each of these situations tends to work out. We have very few times when we get sued overseas. Um, I think for the most part, we feel we've been able to tell the stories we need to. To pivot slightly, what would you say is the most fulfilling part of your job? I really love journalism. I love a good story. I love a good story that's well told. And it's just exciting to see at a place like the New York Times how stories come together, to feel that in some small way I've contributed to that. Reporters have an amazing, amazing uh, range of topics they can talk about, and stuff they know. It's just really fun to, to, to be with them. Our primary audience is students, and for those students listening who are maybe concerned about entering a field under attack, if you will, what advice would you offer to those students? Let me, let me answer that first by talking about what I think is, is the big life lesson, which applies in journalism, but in a lot of other places, law and, and any other line of work you may be pursuing. And it comes down to what I express in, 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 in two, two statements, be excellent and be lucky that whatever your first job is, whatever you're doing, be really good at it. Don't say, how did I end up here? <laughs> Why am I doing this? I'm better than this. Or I don't like doing this or whatever. Be excellent at it. And if you're excellent at things, if you get lucky and you get a chance to, to, to uh, have a break that leads to a better job, 
people are not going to look at, well, have you done this? Have you done that? As much as are you a person of achievement? Have you, have you shown a record of success? Because that translates. You may be doing something that's very different from your next job, but what will be the same is, is that pursuit of, of excellence. In journalism specifically, I'm very concerned about the financial state of local journalism. It is an outrage. It's bad for democracy. It's bad for local communities. Um, but it's, it's, it's bad because it makes it hard to break into journalism these days and get paid to do a, a, a tough job that needs to be done well. The only thing I can say is there's still places to go to get trained. Um, do the best you can while you're there. Keep your eye out for the next job and the next one after that, because uh, if you're good, you're going to find your way. David, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Northworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Until next time. Thank you.